Gold Diggers, the debut novel from Sejina Suthian, is where ambition meets alchemy. Neil Narayan, a teenager of Indian immigrants living in Atlanta, finds himself struggling to find his place in the world. Neil discovers that Anita and her mother have been making a potion to achieve success by infusing lemonade with gold stolen from their Indian neighbors. In this episode, we talk to journalist Sejina about her debut work, how she came about writing her novel, and her teenage experiences as an Indian American in suburban Atlanta. I'm Denny. And I'm Veronica. Join us in another episode of the Vulgar Jesus Podcast. Are you currently looking for a bookstore that has a great selection of books? Well, Kizzy's Books and More is that bookstore. Visit www.kizzysbooksandmore.com to purchase your next book for our book club. Use coupon code VULGARGENIUS to receive 10% off the subtotal of your first order. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Vulgar Jeans podcast. My name is Denny. And I'm Veronica. And today we are with our May Book of the Month author. Um, we have Miss Sanjana Sathian. Um, we welcome her to the show and we're going to talk, be talking to her about um, her debut novel, Gold Diggers. Um, so Miss Sanjana is a Paul and Daisy Soros Fellow. Um, she is a 2019 graduate of the Iowa Writers Workshop. She has worked as a reporter in Mumbai and San Francisco with nonfiction bylines for The New Yorker, The New York Times, Food and Wine, The Boston Globe, The San Francisco Chronicle, and more. Her award-winning short fiction has been published in Boulevard, Joyland, Salt Hill Journal, and The Master's Review. Again, we welcome Miss Sanjana Sadian to the Vulgar Jesus podcast. Hello! Hello, nice to see y'all. Hi, thank you so much for, for joining us this evening and um, us getting the chance to talk about your book. And I don't know if you are aware, but Denny just dropped that you are our May book of the month for our book club. And we're so excited for everyone else to get a chance to read this novel along with us. Um, so let's just jump right on into these questions, shall we? Um, so this book is not like anything that we've we've read before and um so we want to know you know straight up like what was the inspiration behind gold diggers and also we were just curious as to why you chose to uh have a male protagonist for your story yeah that's a that's a question I've been getting a lot um uh well so I'll step back the um the book as you know, follows um, a mother and a daughter who are gold thieves. And then it's told through Neil, their neighbor's perspective. Um, and I started with the conceit of gold theft and some magic around it. So when I was growing up in the suburbs of Atlanta, um, there were like these spates of gold thefts. Um, and they were always like other Indians who had left way too much gold around the house. And it was just like easy to get to. And I think one thing that like people who aren't in the Indian community don't know as much about is just how prevalent gold is, even for like more middle class. Like it's not like a thing that you just have for being rich. It's like there in 
middle-class homes often because the price is different back in India. So it's this thing that people bring, especially in the eighties when you were, um, there were limits on how much money you could take out of India because the economy was closed. So people would bring their sort of hopes and dreams in gold. And then if you don't secure it, pretty easy to, to have it stolen. And so um, when I was growing up, people were, were stealing in this world and, and it was happening in other suburbs where there were a lot of um, Indian Americans. And uh, my mom kind of loves a good, uh, a good crime yarn. Um, and she was always like, there's someone in the community who's involved, just mark my words. Like there's someone sneaking around, they'll never get caught. Cause like people don't suspect us, but I'm telling you that's what's happening. Um, and she has no memory of saying that, but I thought about that for a long time. And I was like, what would it be like to be someone no one suspects, no one in the community suspects is going to steal from someone else in the community? Um, who could that be? And so I thought about a, a mother who was maybe living apart from her husband in sort of a quasi separation. And so was on the outskirts of society and maybe a little bit of a pariah in the community. And then a daughter um, and I started writing from actually the mom, Anjali, and the daughter, Anita's perspectives first, because, you know, I'm a woman, it was, it was actually going to, it, it seemed more natural that I would write from those people's perspective. And the voice just wasn't happening. Like it was sort of, it was vague, it was dreamy, it was somber, but it wasn't good and it didn't have any life in it. And I threw away a lot of pages um, that I wrote from those women's perspective. But the book kind of came to be when I decided to head hop out of um, Anita and Anjali's perspectives and into their neighbor, Neil. And Neil was a great character for me because he doesn't know anything about what's going on. He can discover it along with the reader. Um, and I think as for writing from a male perspective, it was something that I kind of just jumped into. Maybe it's like, men, particularly men at that age, are like a little more bumbling. Like it's, it was just easy for, for him to be clueless in a way that, you know, could be charming, but also, you know, he's, he's a harmless nerd. And I spent most of my high school life around brown male harmless nerds. Like that was my world. So in a lot of ways, like I, I am Neil, I am like a 15 year old immature boy so it it was he was in me somewhere <laughs> and speaking of Neil like he's they're still clueless up to this day Sanjana so I mean that narrative hasn't changed <laughs> she almost had her water <laughs> for those of y'all who can't see it <laughs> but yeah it, it was fun actually because it's like this is different because I I enjoyed it I enjoyed being Neil like I'm like oh you know I'm, I enjoyed like that wistful, like not knowing, like it couldn't be them. Like, I'm sure it's not them. And then when it was them, they were like, holy shit, it was them. You know, I'm like, I want in. Like any other men would do, I'm like, I need to have this too. <laughs> it can't be for them. He's He's got to take it for himself. Yeah. Right. So um, going back to our um, great friend, Neil, the pressure to be, to be great in everything was one of his one of, one of his many struggles. He even admitted that he was afraid to to make a mistake as a child. So our question is how this kind of like mod, model minority thinking affect and confuse brown people on how like to live their lives, especially like when you're as young as and as like I guess moldable like these 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 teenagers. 
Yeah. Moldable is a great, is a great word. I mean, the, the sort of public narrative of this book now that it's out in the world has very much been like, it's a deconstruction of the model minority myth. Um, and I think that is correct, but it's not how I started out. Like I started out just writing my own experience of sort of coming of age in a world that was heavily like Indian and Asian American, um, but a very particular corner of Indian America, a very particular corner of Asian America where like, because of some mix of like who had arrived in Atlanta for what reason and the socioeconomic makeup of the suburbs was this completely artificial bubble in which only certain values were prized. And so I was, I was writing about kind of my own experiences of not knowing who I could be and only having one picture provided to me by my community and then confirmed by the world about who I could be. Um, and so I was just, I was just living in that headspace again when I wrote this book was just, especially at the start, feeling the constriction from the inside out. Um, and when I sort of was on draft five, seven, whatever, that's when I actually started using the kind of like public ethical, political language that I came into in my twenties. Um, but you know, I, I didn't have that phrase at the ready when I was in high school. I did. I don't think I'd even heard anyone say model minority, let alone model minority myth. Like I learned about that later. And I think my understanding of that infused the way I wrote, but it was, um, it's what the, the whole book is in conversation with, but the characters aren't fully in conversation with it, if that makes sense. Because at that at that age, you know, you just want to belong. You just you just want to be like I I I want to have friends too. I kind of I kind of just want to be like normal, whatever normal is, in your little community. Yeah, yeah, and normal for these characters. There's two normals. There's like the whiteness of the the part of Atlanta that they belong to is normal capital N, but there's a smaller like lowercase N for what's normal in their community. And Neil is failing to live up to even that, um, which is totally how I felt. Yeah, oh. <laughs> how we felt. <laughs> and I think that's, you know, that's why I think this book is so relatable because it doesn't like Asian Americans in general have this like two worlds that you have to live in, that you have to float in. And sometimes you don't know which one really you have to go to. And like, you're not accepted in the other one because you're not white enough, but you're not accepted in the other one because apparently you're not brown enough as well. So to me, that's why it's it's so relatable. It's definitely like walking a tightrope. So Neil has a sister and uh, her name is Prachi and she is, is seems like she's modeled to be like the perfect child and did everything right. And yet, as Neil mentioned, it took her for her to be engaged and ready to be married off to a man before anything made in her life made sense. Do you think that those feelings were linked to her ambition being stolen and feeling unaccomplished because she lost the pageant or was it something more that was deeply rooted in her culture? Oh, that's so interesting. I think that's kind of a fair reading. Um, that when when someone steals from from Prachi in the first part, they take something big. Um, I think I I also imagined though that in some ways 
um, when Anita steals from Prachi, she's sort of lifting a burden. Like I've been thinking a, a little bit about Prachi off the page these days. Um, and cause you know, she's a minor character, but people have responded to her. So all of a sudden I've had to be like, be like, who is that person? What's, what was going on with her in her life outside the page? And I think in some ways, like having someone steal your ambition is like, that's a good thing. Like it frees you. And Prachi, I think um, she is both like constricted by the world she belongs to where everything is about in high school, high school, everything is about getting into Duke in her twenties. Everything is about having this perfect buffed up life, the perfect fiance, the perfect job. Um, But she's also like kind of okay and kind of happy in that world. And so I don't totally begrudge her that it's like, that does work for some people. Um, and it's like really inconvenient if that doesn't work for you. Um, so I think my, my sympathies lie with people for whom that doesn't work, but I know a lot of, I have a lot of friends for whom that does work. And sometimes I'm like, wow, it would be, it would be nice if, if X were enough, it would be nice to not have like my, my work involving like diving into all of the difficult, complex, swirling feelings that require you to write every day. So Prachi's an interesting character because I think she's, um, she's both deeply unfree and is like subject to all of the forces that the book is critical of, but she individually, I think is kind of okay within that. Yeah. And I think we all know what Prachi, like <laughs> our own little communities that, you know, just kind of just goes through the flow. <laughs> And they're okay with it mm. and that doesn't make them a bad person but you know it's just how they want to be and sometimes sometimes it's cool <laughs> um so if you've recently wrote an article in the new york times and you said ambition leads to greed um but also you said in this book as immigrants um the, that ambition is the one that um settles the nerves of immigrant parents so how do we temper that ambition and and how do we how we how do we do that so we can preserve our own sense of self and fulfill that responsibility to accomplish that said ambition maybe not only for ourselves but mostly for the people around us yeah i'm still working on tempering it um uh get get a therapist um i'm uh I, I have an Asian American therapist for the first time ever. And like, honestly, kind of amazing because there are, there are these things that before I wrote a book and put a book into the world, I didn't know other people had these feelings. I didn't know other people would like relate to them. Um, but yeah, I mean, a lot of this is like ongoing work because it's about being like, I feel like so many of my friends are sort of like in constant battle with who they were as teenagers, which has to do with being in convert, sort of being um, uh, at battle with their parents, but more often like their parents' values. And the tricky thing about values is like no one announces them. They're just implicit. They just kind of rule you that way. Um, so, but I think, I think it's also important for me to say that the the ambition that I'm critical of is so particular to this corner of the Indian American experience that I come from. And I think that there are 
is a lot of legitimate ambition in the world. But like the the corner of, of Indian America that I come from, I have seen it lead to a kind of complacency and greed. But I don't think that's true of everyone. I think it's it's true when your community is already artificially socially engineered and then is unaware of that engineering and then takes for granted. Like one of the problems with the model minority myth is not just that it's placed on us by white people, but it's that there are like conservative people in the Indian American community who grab onto that and tout that. So like, that's a thing that I think is super important for us to engage with. It's just this idea that like it, like we're pushing it sometimes too. And like, that's so dangerous. I think I took a big swerve away from what you asked me, but <laughs> it's a pet peeve. <laughs> yeah. No, it, 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 it's kind of actually like, you know, what we what we need to talk about because it's it's not only in, you know, I think in every like Asian, Asian little like corner of the world, there is always those people that think that they are different from other, other, other of their kind because they have this so-called better values or better like understanding of what, they think is right so they they push on they push on these like values and teachings to like the younger generation who further confuses themselves of what it really is that they that they want to be or how they want to conduct themselves in the world yeah so it's that when when we read when we read that article it was kind of like huh i'm like (laughs) dang it really hits the core right here (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad that connected. Yes. <laughs> um, so let's talk about Anjali Auntie uh, and her relationship with her daughter. Um, did did she project all of her hopes onto Anita since the death of her brother Vivek? And do you think that was partially due to the regret that 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 she might have been holding on to? Yeah, I think that's I think that's a fair reading. Um, I think that like, it's also so hard to know when we're projecting, like, again, it's just one of those things that's like in the air. Um, you know, I, growing up, I knew that there were like losses um, that my family had dealt with like back in India and we didn't talk about them. And it like, it never occurred to me that I was kind of allowed to ask a relative, like, I know you lost someone when you were a teenager or something like that. Um, and if I had had access to that, I might've, you know, understood like the genealogy of people's sort of regrets and hopes and desires and ambitions. Cause they come from somewhere. Um, but yeah, I think I, I think I was able to channel some of those things that I had wondered about, um, in my world into that, that plot line of, of Anjali, Anita and the memory of Vivek, um, just that no one, no one there is entirely aware that that seems to be what's driving her, but it's, I think it's part of it. Yeah. I like what you said about not being able to, well, you, you didn't know that you could have those conversations um, with people because it, it got me to thinking a lot about like where I am now understanding the decisions or the things, the actions that happen uh, when I was younger and watching my parents try to be adults because they're, you know, they were young and you you don't think that because you see them as very old people, no matter what age you, you are until you become that age that they were, right? 
And so it, it, it takes a lot for you to be able to get to a place where you have that conversation if you choose to um, with your parents. And it gives you an idea of like where they were coming from and why they chose to do those things. Unfortunately, you know, you don't you can't have that when you're in the in the moment when the when the things are are happening but uh, it really speaks volumes when you can get to a place where you can just ask your parent like why did you do xyz right so i it would have been interesting if we could see that in the future for for anita and to sit down and like actually sit down and really talk to her mom and and get that information um so colonialism it's a heavy theme throughout your novel. <laughs> the erasure of culture that is prevalent in America is not surprising and denying the different people have already been in this country is an old and disappointing narrative. Like what Neil said, finding that genealogy of American belonging continued to exclude me. Why was it necessary to deliver a story not only to entertain, but also to inform? Well, I think if the book informs, it's sort of incidental um, because I was informing myself as I wrote, you know, um, the, there are these like essayistic riffs in the book that um, in the early work, I, I put up one chapter of it for a workshop in, in graduate school and had people look at it. And it was sort of a ridiculous workshop that I, I would not want to relive, but um, the, some of the some of the questions that people raised were like, who is Neil talking to when he like ex when he says something about basements, when he like reflects on like how basements were important to um, survive an Indian party? And I was like, well, I'm talking to myself like there are there are ways in which having something that is essayistic and informative um, there are ways in which it can be conforming to white gaze, but there are other ways in which it's like, I have to speak myself to myself. And, and that's, I think that's so hard to walk. And so like when I teach students, I try to be sensitive about which way they're going. Um, and are you discovering something or are you explaining and is the, who is the explanation for, um, the, the information, the other information part is like the history, which was just like an experience of discovery for me. Um, I started researching the California gold rush, not expecting to find any evidence of South Asians in the gold rush. And then I found this story in a German travelogue um, about an Indian man. And it was really dark. Like it was basically the story of a quasi lynch mob told from the perspective of the man serving out vigilante justice, no introspection. It was so horrifying to read. Um, but I, you know, I put that almost wholesale into, into part one. Um, and again, it's like Neil's discovering it. So he is, he is getting information from someone else in his community who is also discovering it because all of these stories exist in the margins. Um, so yeah, I think, I think like the craft lesson that I always try to, to talk to my students about is like, um, give your characters like a journey if they're going to discover something. And so I just, I experienced this journey of learning about South Asian history, South Asian American history, and then I just gave it to Neil. Um, yeah. It was, it was very interesting. Cause like, you know, finding, finding like that piece of like history of all places in a German, like, like 
like travel log is is very not really surprising but you're like oh see like we're here we we've been here we've been doing things and it's not surprising because like you know we have been on this earth at least longer maybe you know maybe than our our white predecessors <laughs> so it's 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 kind of nice to hear validation and to be like in a novel form it's kind of like oh you know and to to for it to be read by more people it's kind of like i don't know it, i think it's nice to be like validated at some point if especially if you're south if you're south asian and you're reading this mm-hmm. if you're if you're reading this novel so book that i always recommend in case people are listening and are interested in knowing more because there's so much I couldn't use, but it's called Bengali Harlem and the Lost Histories of South Asian America by Vivek Bald. And it tells the story of South Asian men um, arriving mostly as undocumented immigrants before 1917. And there's just been so little recording of this. And largely it's because they passed as Puerto Rican or black in Harlem, in New Jersey, And then a sort of similar thing happened in California and Stockton where Punjabi men arrived and married into Mexican communities. And it's like, when you discover that kind of what you're saying, you're like, oh, wow. Like, not only did I not know that we were here in this fashion, but like my community has not decided to acknowledge that we were here and that like, we are people of color who have like relied on other communities of color to survive in America. And like, if you have that story in your head when you're thinking about who your community is in America, like that's going to affect your politics. It's going to affect your ethical orientation toward America. Um, So I I like always recommend that book because it was like a personally mind blowing read. So why, why was it so pressing to try to preserve like all these stories? Like you talked about like tradition, you talked about the food, the Indian parties and, you know, the practices of our culture, the gold, um, how how we live their lives, um, even though suppressing suppressing it might be, you know, might make it easier for us um, to assimilate into this like new country. Yeah, I mean, the traditions that my characters participate in are they're sort of like shallowly Indian. They're not like the 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 central ritual at the heart of the book is this making of the lemonade and that's like a like maybe it has some ancient qualities I don't really get into the the origins of the magic um I took some of it from like Vedic tantric history so there's like evidence of it having ancient properties but it's kind of a new new world thing in the sense that like this version of ambition is a result of like modernization and like globalizing India's educational system and late capitalism like it's it is actually quite a contemporary conceit and so I actually I don't think of the book as being about a sort of preservation of tradition but more just an observation about the way my world looked at that period which was this mix of old and new um I think I I did have like this sort of self-hating need to desire to assimilate when I was a teenager. And I don't feel even remotely that way now, but I I definitely felt it back then. And I think looking back at that period of life, kind of 2006 suburban Georgia and being able to say like, 
here is the world that I belonged to by giving it literary attention. Like that is, that is a kind of love. But I think if I also were to be, were to only provide, see it as love, like I wouldn't be able to do any of the other things that I try to do in the book, which is level critiques of that world. So it's, it's a hard bothness to, to, to try to do, because I think, especially when your community has been underrepresented in literature, media, like national discourse, there is an instinct to say, like, let me put forth like the best version. Let me take up this space in a way that is like good for my community. But there's this thing that like um, Philip Roth and Toni Morrison and Viet Thanh Nguyen all talk about in terms of like, how do you tell the full story? It's both, you know, let's see the tradition and also like, it's not always beautiful. Can we tell the truth? Um, and part of the truth is, you know, we're not always well behaved. We're not good to each other. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, something about telling your business. <laughs> it is, it is. It's a very revealing thing when you are, are allowing other people to see what's going on within within your home, within your community, and and say, you know, like we all got our, we all have our troubles, right? <laughs> This is ours. Um, so how exhausting must it be to always have to adjust? We do it to belong and make our lives, conversations and existence easier. What do you think we sacrifice if we continue to adjust? Wow. Um, our, our imaginative freedom, um, you know, one just sort of continuing what we were just talking about. Like one thing that you can do as a writer and a reader is not adjust by, you know, telling a full story. And it means then that like, I'm taking this bet that there will be other Indian, South Asian American, children of immigrants, readers of color who will relate to this thing. And I'm kind of thinking about those readers first before I'm thinking about like a nosy white reader and like adjustment was a thing that I had to think about a lot in the craft of this book. Um, just thinking about, was I going to make it easy on the reader to enter a world that I took for granted? Um, and it's been really nice to see the people who aren't of the world are able to enter it, but I wasn't trying to make it, you know, um, easy. Um, and I just, I think that's something that like creatives of color are feeling freer and freer to do is like, can we put up, um, I mean, like, I think writers have have done this a lot in, in their own literary worlds, but like we start to see it on TV a little bit more too, where it's like, we can have a cast of characters who are engaging with their own communities stories and histories and challenges and it maybe doesn't always have to be token person of color on the fringes of a white story yes there there is something when like you know what we spoke about earlier about of like showing showing everything but also now there I feel like even more now than ever I think because of those who came before us and wrote these stories that it's easier for us to know that when we're writing these stories that these stories are written for for us and if anybody else wants to come in and read them they're more than welcome 
to you know yep. give us your money but still, <laughs> you know like <laughs> we we're we have an idea of who this audience is and we know that they'll understand everything it is that we're writing and we won't have to explain it have you noticed that you're having to explain a lot with your stories when you you know having these conversations and you're with the book clubs and all the people who've picked up your book or gma <laughs> <laughs> well i got 20 seconds on gma so there wasn't much room for <laughs> um thank you for asking that um i have been relieved that it doesn't happen that much um i actually really thought i was going to spend um, my book tour getting, you know, sad that I was going to have to tell people over and over again, like, my book doesn't stand for all Indians. This is blah, blah, blah. Like I had, I had all these sort of speeches developed and I do still sometimes, like, I think it's impossible to have a conversation about this book without discussing the sort of complicated politics of representation. But I've been maybe like my publicist is just awesome. Like, like, she, I have, I have an Asian American publicist and Asian Americans on my marketing team. And like, I feel like I've been able to have way more conversations with people who feel like they're already in on the conversation than people who are like new to it. And that is truly mind blowing. Like I had no idea that I was going to get to, you know, talk to Asian American interviewers, talk to people who were coming to the book with a sense of like, I'm recognizing something I'm already on page 10 let's go from there. Um, yeah, it's pretty thrilling. It says something about the literary economy changing. Um, yeah. I think I've, I was very happy to hear that because, you know, we, we, we would do these interviews almost like weekly, you know, with authors. And there's always, that's why we highlight people of color um, in our platform because, you know, our our stories are beautiful and we write the most beautiful stories because I think we have such rich cultures. So to hear from you that, you know, there is some change and like something is happening, it's kind of like, you know, very uplifting because it would be, it would be like so sad, like you said, to, you know, be coming into every like promo tour or your book tour to be like trying to explain who you are still. Mm. But from then, but coming in to be like, they just want to know is, makes my little brown heart happy <laughs> it still sometimes happens but it's been the minority <laughs> yay we're, we're getting better <laughs> so um speaking of being immigrants <laughs> um i think this is what um we, we've been talking about um also earlier that as immigrants um there's also a, also a lot of social stigma that we give to ourselves um, and to our community, um, even before the world does. Um, but there's also this palpable need to be close to the people that are like your own culture, but it also possesses a lot of pressure. Um, so in consequence, there's another layer of this already complicated life that we have to overcome. Um, I think you've touched on this, but how have those experiences have affected you and your writing? Because um, I think mainly you were telling us that was the basis of like how you, you even did this novel. The, the like the pressures, the obligations to the community. Yeah, I don't, I don't think I would have been able to write this if I didn't feel so acutely everything you're talking about. <laughs> like the, it's sort of like the only way out is through. Um, so like, 
that was the material, you know? And that's, that's interesting. I think like artistically too, like to feel like the thing that is causing you personal pain or angst to realize that like that has to be often the subject of your work. Um, yeah, I think, I think we're developing new discourses. Like, again, there's been this, like, I've heard from people who I wouldn't have expected to hear from after, um, they read this book and were like, oh, I recognized myself in X way. And like, I hadn't thought about my own ambition or my obligations to my parents that way. Actually, this auntie in um, my community, um, this Indian parent, uh, like got choked up the other day telling me that um, she had thought about what burdens she had placed on her kid. And she was like, I don't know if I did everything right or wrong, but I have new insight into like what it might've felt like on the other side. Um, that's and huge. yeah, it was, it was amazing. I like really kind of got, got teary because that's also really hard to do. Like as a parent, like as an adult, like I just, I'm so stubborn. Like, I don't think I could like walk around admitting that I have these questions. And to me, that was also, I was also like, you're clearly an amazing parent if you can do that work. Um, but yeah, I think we, we need new language for it. Like it's, there are just so many knots and like, we don't always have the language to untangle them. Um, but those, those come from these like misunderstandings and the many pressures. Um, yeah. And I think in, in the Asian community, communication is not our best not our best it's not our forte um so like like you said like ironing those like you know knots about all these experiences and having that conversation I think if my mom would even you know close to like asking me that question I think I'll be like be in the floor crying and shaking because I'll be like I don't know mom but I you would also feel guilty you know, like them having to have realized like, oh, is there something else that I've missed? I haven't I not, did I do it wrong? Like there's that guilt that comes immediately. I'm like, no, everything is fine. Like, it's okay. Don't have, you don't have to worry about it. But, you know, you grow up thinking like, well, there might have been something that could have been better maybe. But you're, even that you're afraid to talk to yourself about. I feel that. <laughs> <laughs> So let's uh, fast forward the story. Where is um, Neil and Anita? Are they still together? Are they okay? <laughs> um, I, I think Neil has a little more work to do to be mature enough to be in that relationship. Um, oh, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> like they get a happy ending right then, but like, not even really know what they're doing with their life work-wise and you know there's there's a version of their relationship that could become dangerously codependent given both of their histories um but I also I think I took a little bit of joy in like realizing that I was going to get to write a happy ending like that wasn't always clear to me um and then partway through I was like oh, I think I get to write them being together, even if it's just for this tiny ending. And like, I don't know, it's this like, it's this uh, feeling that you don't get to celebrate 
the like the the temporary joy of like real love even if it doesn't last um so I think in some ways I had to like believe in the the spell of it being forever like I had to fall in love with their love story in order to make the ending have all that feeling and then be like what will come will come which is more zen than I've ever been about any of my own relationships (laughs) (laughs) yeah because I think you know we're all we're always afraid to accept the good and like the happiness from from just in the moment so have have having to read that and I'm like oh you know no nobody's dying again or no like nothing is separating or nothing is like in shambles I think we're okay (laughs) I I have a question that I don't know why I didn't write this down before um but just coming to me because your your novel is called gold diggers and then there's mention of of the song gold digger by Kanye West and how it's popular and all the kids are listening to it um what is if there is any your connection to hip-hop and wanting it to have it be a place within the story even if it's just you know a subtle mention and also in the title of your of your book well I'm deeply musically unhip on all genres so um (laughs) I don't I don't have anything intelligent to say about any music but I do listen to it and I grew up in Atlanta in 2005 and 2006 um And so, you know, Kanye was around, but it was really like outcast in that moment. And there was something that I I kept thinking about in sort of the early dance um, scene um, that opens the book. And the the high school that Neil and Anita attend at the start is not my high school. Um, My high school is a little more like Anita's that she goes to later, the, the, the preppier one. But I have these memories of like, the dance floor being so segregated of like, like the white kids would dance to like free bird or something. And then like all the kids of color would come out during outcast and like, you know, <laughs> usher too. Um, and so in that sense, it was just like, there was no one had like language to say anything about it at the time, or no one was saying about anything about it at the time, but it was like, one group can move and one group cannot. <laughs> <laughs> and we all know who can and can't. <laughs> and there was this simpatico energy, like, like my school was definitely like, there were white kids, there were black kids, there were Asian kids. And like the groups did not mingle that much. But I do feel like there were these, and I think my school is, a, a, that school I went to Um, is a lot better about it now but I think there was like a little bit of energy where you were just like walking through the halls and if you weren't white you got something about what was happening and sometimes again like you wouldn't necessarily have the language it's not like we were walking around being like oh we all understand the word solidarity but there was just this like more intimate empathy that was like something about our experience is not quite the same as everyone else's um so yeah music music had to do with that brings up the like more visceral memories <laughs> <laughs> and and you and you mentioned Atlanta and so like Atlanta to me it always feels like like it's like a place like Miami that feels like it's on its own state in itself it's on its own vibration it has a different energy like what was it for you to like grow up in in Atlanta especially during the time that that you're talking about yeah Um, I mean, similarly, I think there's like white Atlanta, black Atlanta, Asian Atlanta, and then like a growing Latinx Atlanta. 
Um, and some of those, like, I think there are like places of business where people overlap a lot. Like, um, I was thinking about this a lot um, when the shootings happened, that like, mm. at least, you know, some of those, one of two of the spas are like right down the street from me, like in, in the heart of Atlanta, right where I live. And there, it's just full of like immigrant establishments. Like you go into a strip mall in Atlanta and you see like a Kumon math center run by Koreans, an Indian dance center, uh, dance studio, like a Pakistani threading salon, a panaderia, like right across the street from a Korean church. It's just like everything is there, like an Ethiopian restaurant right next to it. It's just like, you're all kind of in each other's space, but like there wasn't, at least when I was growing up, like there wasn't that much communication between those worlds. Like we we were sort of kept into our own subculture. But when you like cross paths, like anytime I would like walk into an Ethiopian restaurant, there would be a sense that like the the guy there was was like one of my uncles. Like it just so recognizable to me, just so familiar. Um, and so I think I think Atlanta is just so much more diverse than people realize. Like I think people think like you know, it's like driving Miss Daisy, but it's like a really like, it's a really fascinating world that has textures within like communities of color. And I moved back here kind of by accident because of the pandemic and 2020 was quite a year to be here. Um, Like I came back 10 years, it had been 10 years of not living here. And during that period, Stacey Abrams had registered a million plus new voters there was like the reverse great migration there were like more immigrants who were starting to register to vote like I think Asian and Latinx Atlanta was like known but maybe not voting as much according to a lot of the demographics and so it's just like the city I think that people are relating to now and they're like oh Georgia's blue now like it's always been here it's just sort of coming into light and it's been kind of thrilling to see that like it makes me be like oh, I can live here. Like, this is a cool place. Um, yeah, I'm really happy to be back here. Yeah. It, it shows you how much was suppressed for such a long time that when it comes out, you, like you said, you see something that is uh, it, that is multi-layered and it's beautiful and, and necessary. And it is the beating heart of that, which is Georgia, right? And I bet it felt like good to be like, like you know you can just like breathe Mm. I still wish that for um Florida but I think that would that would be like that's gonna be a journey yes (laughs) come on up come on up (laughs) y'all one day (laughs) Abrams 2022 (laughs) yes (laughs) um so um we all know you know that you are also a journalist. Um, how, like, how did you decide to go into that field? How was that? How were you able to write this book and, you know, living your best life as a journalist? How was your writing, like, in the course of the pandemic? Or do you, or also just your writing per se, like, do you write a lot or do you write in bursts? Yeah. Um, Well, I was a journalist sort of, uh, by circumstance, I got, I, I didn't get into fiction writing classes in college for the first couple of years. And I got into a nonfiction writing class and was like, oh, this is kind of fun. But all I really ever wanted to do was write fiction. Um, but journalism is awesome because it gets you outside yourself. Like 
in I'm sure the way y'all feel when you're like doing interviews, like you're just, you're not stuck in your own brain. It makes you less narcissistic, which is always a problem for fiction writers. Um, And I think especially because I knew so little of the world coming from a very sheltered suburban, like my, my parents kind of running my life sort of world journalism all of a sudden like put me in contact with the world like in my first couple of years of work um you know I got like a grant from college to go do um reporting in Bolivia and Chile um and like my Spanish got good because of that then I was a reporter for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette and the Boston Globe and I was like writing about like fracking towns in southeastern Pennsylvania and like um, you know, migrant uh, children's education in Gettysburg and like running around to like rural retirement homes in Maine to, t- to talk to people about like local hospital closures. And like the sentences I wrote were not particularly good because like you got to serve the newspaper, but like I will never forget being able to go anywhere I wanted and ask questions and like people had to answer. And I, I always felt like I had this, I had this editor um, who's also the, the son of immigrants. Um, and I remember once when I had become an editor complaining to, to my editor in turn being like, sometimes people turn in work and it just like, I just feel like they weren't curious. And like the story is so thin and it's just so, it's so workmanlike. Why, why didn't this person care? And he was like, you need to calm down because for you, this is spiritual and it is not for everyone. And I was like, wow, that's cool. I th- I just thought that was like a beautiful way of describing like an orientation. Um, I wasn't a good journalist. I, I had a lot of energy. Um, I wouldn't do a reporting job full time again. I'm glad. I'm glad I did it for a while. Um, these days, like my fiction writing practice is much more it's, it's not as frenzied. It's like, I wake up, I try to write first thing in the morning. I write about a thousand words a day. Um, I throw away most of it. I am a huge vomit drafter. So in the way that I had to write like all of Anita's world, all of Anjali's world before I could even get to Neil, like I'm doing that constantly. So I just like, I just wrote like 150 pages that I was like, oh, great. I'm glad I wrote that. Now I know about this character who is not the main character. <laughs> Super helpful. <laughs> Bye. Six months <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> so you talking to yourself, kind of making those connections. <laughs> it's, it's brutal, but it's also like, like when I teach, especially, I try to be really open about that because I, I need my students to be like brave enough and bold enough to believe that they can throw stuff away. And one of my friends says something lovely about it. He was like, it's not um, a statement of disbelief when you kill your darlings. Like it's, it's instead like a statement of faith that you could produce something better next time. And I was like, wow, that's nice. No, so I need that from now on. <laughs> <laughs> we have it in recording and in video. <laughs> Thank you, friend. <laughs> um, so we want to say congratulations on having gold diggers picked up to be included in the Mindy Kaling universe. So we yes. have we have three questions for you. Question number one, 
have you had a chance to actually talk to Mindy? Because we know that sometimes people don't always get to talk to those people. Number two, do you um, need any extras? And um, <laughs> number three, are you contributing to the, the screenplay? Number two, come on down. Um, it would be fun. I mean, uh, you know, it actually, it would be cool if we got to film in Atlanta because there's like, you know, there's Hollywood, there's Yollywood. It has <laughs> to be in Atlanta. It has to be. Yes, it has to be. Um, uh, I am uh, co-writing the adaptation. Yay! It takes forever for something to actually be made. And there's a very good chance it never happens. But um, that's kind of the reason I've been thinking about like, what is Prachi's life like apart from the page? Like, wh who are these people outside of how I wrote them? And I'm really excited about other people like getting to live in my characters' brains too, like other writers, other creators. Um, I have talked to Mindy and it was very surreal. Um, oh. <laughs> I told no one that this call was happening because my agent had been like, Mindy's going to be on the call. And I was like, I won't tell anyone because if I tell anyone, she'll magically not be on the call. She was so <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, that's awesome because I I've watched uh, the Mindy Project I think at least five times straight through. Like I love her so much. So to find out that she picked up your story is it, it, it's amazing. I really hope it gets picked up and that we can be able to binge that as well. Is it, it is it like going to be a like a television? You hoping is it a television show or a movie? Yeah, we've been talking about limited series for TV. Yeah. Nice. Yep. And we, you know, we all, we, we like the television too, her more than me, but we like the series and, you know, if, if it comes to life, we would do like, you know, like we, how, how we did with like Lovecraft Country, we talk about each episode and we talk about you and, <laughs> and the series because we love this book. So we're speaking that into existence. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Touch wood. <laughs> so um and before we get to one of our very most important questions um we did a deep dive into your instagram um you have done a lot of traveling and so we want to know how have you been able to deal with your your wanderlust during this pandemic and do you ever find yourself searching places to go and keeping a mental checklist of places that you want to go once the once the world opens back up Oh man, I have been, I always have itchy feet. Um, and one thing that I've managed to do, which is really sneaky, is I'm, I managed to do a lot of that travel while I was on assignment um, as a journalist. And then I was like teaching in New Zealand last year because I had a job. So often I like to have a reason to go somewhere because I'm not actually very good at, but I'm not good at just being on vacation. Like I'm not good at being a tourist. Um, uh, so yeah, if there's like a teaching job, I really need to get back to India. I miss it a lot. Um, I live on and off in Bombay and Mumbai. And I really had been like looking forward to starting this writer's workshop there. I did it online last year due to the pandemic, but I'm hoping to get back there. Um, but I really want to go to Cambodia. Um, I have not been to Cambodia, but I really want to go. And I keep thinking about going. <laughs> Yes. Well, we hope that happens for you as well. So let's do that show. <laughs> Cambodia, come on, guys, make it happen. <laughs> so there was there was this um there was like asking for a friend. 
they wanted to know um when are you going to start that youtube channel about your fitness journey though <laughs> <laughs> i would watch that <laughs> i'm like i need to take steps, man let me go through these stories and write some stuff down <laughs> Look at her lifting those weights. <laughs> I would love to be a fitness influencer. It's my secret, secret goal. Unfortunately, this pandemic has made that very unlikely. I'm going to have to learn it all from scratch again. <laughs> have new goals for 2021. Go for 2022. That's it. Hey, book tomorrow the you, fitness world youtube star we're taking it all <laughs> so this is um this is usually like our our most difficult question for for writers and for book lovers alike um if you want to speak on on the top five books that you love the most or the top five book recommendations that you're looking forward to for the next coming months or or the year your choice you can choose both you always want both like, people always like how dare you ask these <laughs> questions um well i'll say two books that i am looking forward to that i hope um y'all read and and everyone who loves this podcast reads um uh anthony vayasna so um is a was a khmer American writer who I was just becoming friends with when he passed away in December um, and his short story collection after parties is coming out in August. I haven't read the whole thing, but everything I've ever read of Anthony's is just incredible. And like every time I would read one of his stories, I would be like, this makes me feel more free as a writer. Cause it's like, it, he could just weave between completely hilarious to complete, completely heartbreaking. And I'm just so sad we won't have more of his work in the world, um, but that we have that book is a really big deal. Um, and I've been thinking about him a lot because we were the same age. We were both Soros fellows and we had like talked about doing events together this year. And so every time I do an event, I like kind of want to make sure that people know about his amazing work. Um, uh, another book that's coming out next year in 2022 from Viking is called All This Could Be Different um, by Sarah Thunka Matthews. Um, y'all should definitely have her on. She's totally brilliant. She was one of my early readers. And it's just this amazing, like, coming of age story that's about work and capitalism. And it's also a queer love story. And it's like, it feels like this thing that was like, waiting to burst into being from our generation. Um, that's like, oh, wow, this is the experience of so many people. Um, and it's set in Milwaukee. It's like, you haven't read this kind of book before. Um, books that have been really important to me. Um, uh, all of Zadie Smith's work. I wrote my thesis on her, um, on her novels in college. Um, she's so important to me. Um, a book called The Buddha of Suburbia by Hanif Qureshi, um, Rushdie and Toni Morrison and Marquez as these sort of like experimental, powerful, do magic, do voices and like give rise to a world because of that. Um, uh, like I, like I, I reread the bluest eye, um, last year and was like, I don't think people know how crazy this book is. It just makes so many, like it makes so many difficult turns that are just like impossible to imagine pulling off. 
Um, and in that vein too, Philip Roth. And I think people have started to think of him as just like this old white man writer, but we forget that like in the era that he was writing, like Jewish literature was minority literature. And yeah. so like, you know, he was on panels as like minority writer with Ralph Ellison. And um, even though he amassed more social power as he got older and had all the privileges of whiteness, there is also something I recognize in those books that's like, writing a community that is assimilating, but is still on the outside. Um, so those those writers have meant a lot to me. I also reread The Bell Jar um, once a year. Um, it's so much funnier than people think just because of how she tragically died. But it's like, it's a funny and witty book that is just great to re-enter. Oh yeah. <laughs> so Sanjana, like you had Prachi, um, answer this question in the pageant before we let you go what does it mean to be Indian and American <laughs> if I could have answered it in a pageant form I would have but I wrote a book <laughs> there, you there you have it <laughs> well on that note we come to the end of our time with you and we just want to say thank you again to coming on to um, our podcast. We, we enjoyed every bit of your book and every bit of this conversation. And it has been truly, truly a pleasure. And so uh, we just want to tell you all to um, be safe out there. Yes. And if ever we go to Atlanta, um, we should, we should, we should go to a gym jibang um, <laughs> and, and have some food. Yes, yes. <laughs> So thank you all for having me this was really special thank you very much thank you take care take care Have a good night bye, bye. bye. we hope you enjoyed our show follow us on instagram at vulgar geniuses book club our theme song was produced by Sean Kantrowitz. Follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Sean Dammit. That's spelled S-E-A-N-D-A-M-M-I-T. Make sure to like, comment, and subscribe to our podcast on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. See you next time. Deuces.